if you have watched television any the last two weeks, then you know that our country is uh, about to elect uh, another president. Uh, We have been watching as the two political parties have been setting out their agenda and their platforms uh, for our country. Uh, This past week, of course, the Republicans laid out their uh, agenda and platform, and the week before, the Democrats did theirs. And, of course, what they try to do is they try to, you know, here's where we're going, and here's who we are, and, and then they have the platform. And the platform represents what they stand for. In many ways, and John's already mentioned this in the Scripture reading a few moments ago, in many ways what Jesus was doing in the upper room the night he was betrayed was laying out his spiritual platform. For the last two weeks, we're into the third week of it now, we see Jesus as he's basically saying, if you're going to be one of my disciples, here's what you've got to do, here's what you've got to be, here's what you've got to stand on. Two weeks ago, Jesus said to them in the upper room, a new commandment I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know you're my disciples. How do you know if you're a follower of Jesus? Are you loving one another? And then as John read the text out of John 17, just a few moments ago, Jesus followed up during his prayer that night by saying, Father, not only for these, talking about the apostles, but I pray for those who will believe on me through their, through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, as you are in me and as I am in you, may they be in one with us. And so unity becomes another one of those identifying marks that we are the people of God. Well, tonight we come to the one that's the very heart of the, of, of the, of the story. I mean, if you want to know the platform on which we as Christians, what is the very foundational belief that we have, it is the text that we're going to be focusing on today and this week as we continue this story of Jesus. We're taking the text from Matthew chapter 26. We'll look at some other examples here in just a moment. But, but it's a text that is very familiar to anyone who has attended churches of Christ, you know, part of their life. I mean, it's a text that you hear perhaps as much, if not more, than any other text. Every Sunday, whether the text is read, the subject matter is focused on. And it's a very simple text. While they were eating, and of course they're eating the Passover meal, Jesus took the bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Very simple. And then notice, then he took the cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I don't know of anything that explains who we are as the people of God as this particular text. And of course, here in a few moments, we will be literally doing what Jesus asked us to do. Last week in our second service, John Young led the communion thoughts. And John said something that, boy, just when he said it, I thought, I've got to remember that. 
And John said this. He said, we may not need to be reminded of what the Lord has done, but we do need to remember what the Lord has done. In other words, I may not need to remind you of why this is important, but you definitely need to remember as to why it's important. Now, when, when you think about this particular event, again, to people from the outside, this is probably one of the more stranger things that, that we do as Christians. They hear it called a lot of things. In Churches of Christ, we have traditionally called it the Lord's Supper. And then sometimes we'll call it communion. We even have a song when we meet in sweet communion. And, and, and Blake, thank you, that beautiful song that, that really incorporated the supper Unity and love all together, these platforms on which we stand as Christians. And then sometimes it's called the Eucharist. Now, we traditionally don't call it the Eucharist, but, but the word Eucharist comes from the Greek word eucharisteo, which means simply to give thanks. And when Jesus took the bread, what did he do? He gave thanks. When he took the cup, what did he do? He gave thanks. And so a lot of churches will call it the Eucharist, and I've heard it even referred to that in Churches of Christ as well. Now, the Lord's Supper, the story or the, or the giving of the Lord's Supper is actually found four times in the New Testament. Do you know where? I mean, if I were to ask you what four books could you give them? Now, of course, it's Matthew. Matthew 26, the text we're going to be looking at today. But it also is found in Mark chapter 14. It's found in Luke chapter 22. Of these three, most likely Mark was the earliest of these three. Mark wrote his gospel probably sometime in the early 60s to the mid-60s A.D. In other words, about 30 to 35 years after Jesus had ascended back to heaven. But Mark's is not the earliest account. You would think one of the Gospels would be the earliest account. It's not. The earliest account is actually Paul. Even though Paul never wrote a Gospel, Paul wrote a lot about what Jesus taught and what he did, and among them was an account of the Lord's Supper found in 1 Corinthians 11. Once again, a text that we hear quite often right before we take communion. Now, I'm going to be focusing today on Matthew's account. And I want to focus on Matthew's account for, for, for two reasons in particular. One reason is that Matthew is writing to Jewish Christians. Matthew is, is the most Jewish of our four Gospels. He's writing to Jewish Christians, and he's writing to non-Christian Jews. He's writing about 35 years after Jesus' ascension back to heaven. I want you to think about that. He's writing to a young generation that has come up both in the church and in the Jewish community who don't remember Jesus. In other words, if you're 35 and below, when, when Matthew wrote his gospel, you, you don't remember Jesus. Now, I want to tell you for our young people here who are here today, uh, getting older has that effect on you. You know, I remember when first man walked on the moon. I remember that. Blake, do you remember it? See, Blake doesn't remember it. And, and you were like, well, Blake must not have been watching TV that night. No, Blake's not old enough to remember it. You know, and, and I remember talking when I was a youth minister to kids, and I'll say, well, you, you remember back when such and such happened. And they said, no. 
And I'll say, you've not heard about that? And they say, oh, yeah, we've heard about it. We've read about it in the history book. You see, a lot of our lives is now in the history books. And, and the same was the case with Jesus here. And so Jesus, for a lot of the people, when Matthew wrote his gospel, a lot of them was not alive, were not alive when Jesus was active and, and doing his ministry on the earth. And so Matthew writes to Jewish Christians to help remind them of why they believe in Jesus. And he's writing to non-Christian Jews to try to convince them to believe in Jesus. And Matthew's going to write in a way that would have immediately caught their attention in three areas. And it's this last reason, these three areas that Matthew's going to be referring to. Now, one of them is just going to, he's going to assume they're going to know. And I'm sure they did. And, and, and so as we're looking at the text, as I was looking at this text and thinking, how do I present it in a way that we listen to it again? I hope this morning will help. You see, Matthew, as he's writing about this meal with Jesus, would have known that any Jew would have immediately gone back to the book of Exodus. Now, we as Christians don't do that. When we meet around the table and we begin to talk about the supper, our minds don't immediately go back to Exodus. Why? Because we are not members of that first covenant relationship. We're not Jews. But if you'd been a Jew living in the first century, as you began to read what Matthew was writing here, your mind would have immediately gone back to an incident happened some twelve to 1,300 years earlier. It's not even a real familiar text to a lot of us in the church today. Now, let me set the story up. Moses has led the children of Israel out of Egypt. They've come to Mount Sinai. Moses has gone up the mountain. He's received the Ten Commandments. God has given the law to Moses that he is now going to present to the people. And what they're fixing to do is they're fixing to enter into covenant relationship with God. We call it the Mosaic Covenant. And they're now about to enter into it. Notice how they do it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord. And of course the Lord's up on Mount Sinai. You and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, representatives from the 12 tribes. You're to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. And so picture the scene. The people are down at the foot of the hill. The 70 along with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu come up partially up on the, up on the mountain. And then Moses is going to go into the presence of God himself. And so Moses goes down to prepare for this event. Notice how they prepare. Then he sent the young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings, sacrificed young bulls as the fellowship offerings to the Lord. And then Moses took half of the blood, put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. They are now entering into covenant relationship with God. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we'll do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant. Sound familiar? Now, the way they did it was obviously different. I mean, Moses literally takes a hyssop, takes the blood, and begins to sprinkle the people with the literal blood of these animals. 
But notice the language there. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. And that phrase right there instantly, if you know anything about communion, comes to our mind. Because look back at Matthew 26. This is my blood of the covenant. Almost identical words except for the word my. It's not the blood of bulls and goats. It's the blood of Jesus himself that makes the covenant between us and God today. But now watch what happens. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, Nabihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. We'll come back to that in a second. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Uh, several times in the scriptures, you'll see people who come into the presence of God, and it's like this ocean of glass of different colors. In this case, the color sapphire. You turn over to Revelation 4, 6. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And so they come into the presence of God, and then watch what happens. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, what happens if you see God? You die. You see, nobody can see God unless they die. Unless God wants them to see him. And God makes an exception here. And so these 70 come up, Nadab, Nabihu, Aaron, Moses, and they see God. God doesn't raise his hand against them. And then what's odd is what is stated next. Most of us never really paid attention to it. And they ate and they drank. They had a meal with God. Now, I would love to know the details of this story. Who prepared the meal? I mean, did the angels do it? I mean, what did they have? I mean, June's a pretty good cook. But I got to tell you that if the angels cooked the meal, I bet it was awesome. You know. And so what was the meal that day? And, and, and what was God's role in, in this whole process? Now, keep all of that in mind. Because again, as people are reading Matthew's account, their mind's going back to this. And Matthew's mind's going back to it in a very special way. They saw God, and they ate, and they drank. And by the way, so did the apostles. Something that we don't think of very often. Matthew goes on in his story to tell a second story. This one very literal. The text reads, and Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now, one of the things I love to do is I love to compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke side by side. You see, again, I believe Matthew uh, took Mark's gospel and expanded it for Jews. Luke took Mark's gospel, expanded it for Gentiles. And, And most of the church fathers believe that Mark's gospel was really Peter's gospel. It was Peter's memoirs, it is said. And so Matthew take Mark's gospel, but Matthew does something in it. Again, look at the text here from Matthew's account. It's almost identical to Mark's, except for one major change. 
Look at Mark's account. As he walked along, he saw, notice who? He saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Why the change in name? Why did it go from Matthew to Levi? You see, I believe that Levi was his birth name. You see, I believe he was from the tribe of Levi. Perhaps just a Levite who worked at the temple, perhaps a priest himself. We don't know. But, but he's a guy who, while his parents named him Levi, with hopes of who he would be, he was a young man who grew up, of all things, to be a tax collector. You can't get more opposite from the Jews than being a tax collector. And evidently, Matthew changed his name from Levi to Matthew. You see, he couldn't live up to being Levi. It's kind of like having the name Joshua. You see, if your name is Joshua, that's the name Jesus. A lot of people don't realize that. But if your name is Joshua, it literally means Yahweh saves, and it's the name that was given to Jesus. Jesus is simply the Greek version of it. How do you live up to that name? How does a man born to be a a member of the tribe of Levi live up to the name? He doesn't. He changes it to Matthew. And yet when Jesus called him, Matthew follows. And the text says that while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Tax collectors, sinners, eating with Jesus. How do you do that in a worthy way? How do you eat in the presence of the Son of God, the creator of the universe, when you're a tax collector and a sinner? And, of course, the Pharisees picked up on it. They're watching it from outside, and they see this, and they turn to Jesus' disciples. Why does your tax teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he do it? Which simply raises a very simple question. How could Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the answer is the same way he eats with tax collectors and sinners today. You see, here in a few moments, I'll eat with Jesus. And he'll be eating with a sinner. Because that's what I am. You'll be eating with Jesus. And he'll be eating with sinners because that's what all of us are. And so you ask a question. How can we do that? How can we eat in the presence of God? And the answer comes to this meal that we're fixing to partake of. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, and said, Take and eat. You see, this is my body. You remember back in Exodus? How that the young Israelites went and they took bulls and they took sheep and they offered this sacrifice and they took the blood? Hebrew writer would pick up on that very concept. Hebrews chapter 10, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body, a body you prepared. What body? Jesus' body. In fact, he would say in chapter 10, here am I, I've come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second, talking about the covenants. And by that will, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. How can we eat with him? Because we eat of the body that has made us whole. And then notice also, 
And this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, the reason we can meet around this table is because when Jesus went back into heaven, look at what the Hebrew writer says. He did not enter by means of the blood of bulls and and calves, talking about the holy of holies, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining your redemption and my redemption. So Matthew tells a very simple story. A story about one who is willing to sit down because, you see, he had made the once and for all sacrifice. Notice verse 14 here. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect. You, you, me. He has made perfect forever. Those who are being made holy. Do you notice the difference there? You can be perfect and not yet be holy. He's making us holy. But in God's eyes, we're already perfect. And that's why we can sit at the table with God, eat with Him, and see Him. And so we're going to now take communion. I know of people sometimes who struggle to take communion. They struggle because they they think, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to, to eat this bread and to drink this cup. None of us are. It is the very bread and the very blood that the cup represents the body that the bread represents and the blood that the cup represents that gives us the right to sit at this table I hope you'll be blessed today let's sing